this is Ralph from Happy Dog Training and welcome to another episode of Dog Talk. Today we're going to talk about stress in dogs. Now we had a previous podcast called the Layered Stress Model that was uh, in the earlier days of the podcast. And this is not in contradiction to it, it's kind of like an amendment to it. Because all the things that we discussed in the Layered Stress Model 100% apply and there is really no difference to what I'm going to say here today. I want to make some additional points about stress. So the stress layers that we discussed in the past, health, clarity, leashes and colors, communication, all these things that can cause additional stress in a dog and put them over the edge and push them through the threshold, none of that is contradicted by any of this. So if you listen to this information, just know it's a supplemental to that and not um, something that's a revision. So stress in general is something that in dog training or even in people is considered a bad thing, right? Nobody wants to be stressed. Stress isn't great. Who wants to be stressed out? It's much better if you're not stressed. So, but that's not really what I mean when I talk about stress in dogs today. It is about stress spikes from certain experiences. So in dog training, when we um, train to accomplish a behavior, to teach a sit, down, stay, or more complex task, or service task, or recalls, or whatever, it doesn't matter what we're training, or what we're stopping. During this process, there is stress in the dog while they're trying to figure out what it is that we want from them, while they figure out the parameters, what's included in the command, or what they're supposed to not do. There is gonna be some stress involved, and that is the same as it is in us. So there is no difference in terms of learning stress between an animal and a human. So when you go to math class or when you first learn to ride a bike or you first learn swimming, there was some stress, right? So you, maybe your head went underwater in the pool or you fell off your bike and the training wheels had to come back on or it's the first time your parents didn't hold you when you were riding a bike. It's all these things that are causing some stress in the process. So if we were to measure your cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone that we can measure in the body, in those moments where you have these learning stresses, they would be pretty high. Uh, so if we, if we take uh, somebody who was maybe some struggling a little bit with math and they're going into a math class and they're not quite getting the, the lecture of the day and then the teacher calls on them, well, if I measured the stress right in that moment, it's probably going to be pretty up there because like, oh, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the answer is. So... Stress is part of life. Stress is part of learning. Stress is unavoidable. So that's something to just keep in mind in general. If you, let's say you learn a piece of music and there is this hard passage you can't quite get over when you're on the piano or the guitar or whatever the instrument is, and there's this one passage in the song you're trying to master you can't get through. You can't get through. You struggle, you struggle, you struggle. And then you sleep on it and then... The next day, oops, all of a sudden, it goes in, right? So it just goes over it because now basically all the practice you did the day before kind of integrated into your circuits and now you can just play through it. But the prior day when you were struggling and you couldn't get it right, you get frustrated and you, uh, it's a little like annoying and at some point you give up and you stop. In that moment or while you're working up to it, your stress will be higher. All these things apply to dogs. So when a dog tries to figure out 
what it is that I want from them. When I say a command and they haven't quite understood yet, well, is that meaning standing or sitting or lying down or what is included in that? Can I get back up when you walk away? Or do I have to stay there while you walk away? Or what does down actually mean exactly? What's all included in a down? Can I get up when you throw a ball? Can I go up when my friend comes along? Do I have to stay here when the door opens? So all these, these things that are unclear to a dog initially when we try to teach what's all part of a down is stressful because they're trying to figure it out just like we are in math class or the pool. And these stressors are not problematic. This is how the body is supposed to work. This is the normal biology of learning. So as we're going through this process, we're having these stress spikes and they dissipate immediately because we are getting over it and we're moving on or we're enjoying the game and then we're mastering the, the music song or we're mastering the bike or whatever it is. So when, when we go through these learning experiences, we're going to have stress spikes. Right? If we now were to measure that in math class at the wrong moment, right, right in a moment when the teacher calls on you, right when you're really struggling trying to understand it, we would measure the cortisol level and we would conclude, well... That seems to be really stressful on Timmy. Maybe math isn't for him. Maybe we should just not send him to math class. Obviously, that's not how we handle this in the human world, right? So some things have to be learned, and we can struggle through it, and the temporary stressors are not something we consider harmful because they're not. They're temporary. Same with a dog. As a dog struggles through mastering something, there's going to be some stress moments in, in this process. And if we were to measure stress in the moment where we have um, maybe used a leash, popped in the leash a little bit, or erected with a leash, the dog will be like, oh, what was that? And he may be a little stressed in that moment from trying to figure out what's happening. If I were to measure cortisol right in that moment, I could conclude, well, that seems to be stressful. Maybe my dog shouldn't, shouldn't learn that. But that would be a wrong conclusion because it's a very temporary effect. You're not going to have permanent stress from going through a learning cycle. So when we look at some of those canine studies that are out there that focus on cortisol levels during learning, there is the conclusion drawn that, well, we, we used a training collar and we popped the collar and then we measured the cortisol and see the stress was high, so that's not good. right? So that, that would be a typical cortisol study in, in dog training that would conclude that, well, this tool or that tool or this process or that process causes too much stress. But that's very misleading because if we were to measure the same cortisol in the saliva 10 seconds later, a minute later, it'd be dropped back off to normal levels. So there is no downside to this temporary stressor in learning, just like when we learn something we actually enjoy now. Uh, activity that maybe you learned driving first, maybe was, was stressful, right? So we, we learn things that made a moment of learning may be stressful, but then because of that, we have more freedom, we can do more things, we can enjoy life more. It was worth it. And it's very temporary, so it's not harmful. Same thing with a dog. If I have a solid recall on my dog, if my dog knows um, to stay away from rattlesnakes or things like that, my dog can have more freedom, he can be loose on the trail, he can explore nature, have a much richer and better life through a couple of temporary stress moments in learning. So when we talk about stress in dogs, we got to keep in mind that temporary learning stressors 
or stress events or stress moments are not an indication of a process or tool or whatever the trading is being generally problematic. If we're causing too much stress and the stress doesn't dissipate and the stress lingers for a long time, or there is fallout from what we did in the trading because it was too much, it was overwhelming, and it led down really the wrong path, and now I have lasting side effects. Well, that's obviously bad, and we don't want to be doing that. But temporary learning stressors, just by cortisol measurements, are not an indication that there is a problem in the training process or with the training tool that's being used. So let me give you another example. And then I'm going to go into a very concrete study um, that kind of examined that for three different training approaches. But let's say we're here in Southern California. We have a very biodiverse environment. It's actually the most biodiverse uh, environment outside the Amazon rainforest. So we have a lot of things crawling around, crawling about. And we have six different types of rattlesnakes in Southern California. And when you go out with your dog on a trail, you're going to encounter rattlesnakes. It's just a given. It's not that you're never going to come across a rattlesnake. You will. It's just a matter of when and where. So if your dog gets to go hiking with you in the mountains or in more remote areas, for your dog to be safe around rattlesnakes is really a matter of life and death. Because if your dog finds this, this wriggling thing on the ground interesting enough, he gets bitten, and if we're in a remote area, that may be the end of my dog. So rattlesnake avoidance training is really, really important if you live in this area. In Northern California, there's two types of rattlesnakes. In the rest of the U.S., there's one type of rattlesnakes. And then there's other parts of uh, America where you have different other poisonous snakes, like black mambas also in Florida. There's other poisonous creatures. But just thinking in terms of rattlesnakes and rattlesnake avoidance class, teaching your dog to avoid rattlesnakes gives them a lot of freedom. Your dog cannot go hiking safely, can go to trail, actually becomes a warning system for you because they're going to indicate with their behavior if there's something maybe not so great under that rock or that bush that you're trying to walk by and let you know, hey, we're not going near that bush. So, but how do we teach rattlesnake avoidance training? The only way to make it reliable is to work off the scent of the snakes that you're going to encounter. So the sight is pretty useless. By the time you see the rattlesnake, it's kind of too late. Um, and they're not going to be these big snakes that you sometimes see placed on rocks somewhere. The rattlesnakes are going to be smaller for the most part. And they're often under bushes, especially in the middle of the day. They come out morning and evening, lying in the sun. But not in the middle of the day when you may be walking down this path. So the likelihood that the snake's out in the open is pretty low when you come there. So more likely you're going to encounter a snake under a bush or under, behind a rock and you're not going to see it. And if you get too close, by the time you hear the rattle, it's probably over. You're probably going to get bitten. And maybe you make it out of there, maybe you don't. But if your dog gets bitten, it gets really tricky. Can you carry him or her? Um, how far are you away from your car? How fast can you get to the vet? Because you do need the antivenom. If anybody gets bitten, you need the antivenom. This is the only thing that, that helps anything. Rattlesnake vaccines are completely a pointless exercise. If you listen to the um, the rattlesnake episode that we had on the podcast with with Carl, the rattlesnake trainer I used to follow my dogs, um, he's a biologist, you understand why rattlesnake vaccines, they don't work. I mean, they worked. We wouldn't have them for people if we don't. That's the reason. So they don't work. They just buy you some time, which you can buy yourself in different ways. But avoiding rattlesnakes is key to survival out in the wild and give your dog that level of freedom, that, that, that level of life experience that otherwise your dog can't have safely. So 
But how do we do this? We do this with shark colors, right? So the dog approaches the scent of a rattlesnake type in your area. Uh, maybe it's the Mojave, or so the Southern Pacific, or the Northern Pacific, or the Sidewinder, or the, the, the Diamondback, whatever, whatever the rattlesnake types in your areas are. And the dog is learns that approaching that scent is a really bad idea because it gets a zap on that color. And that's done a couple of times. It takes 15, 20 minutes in a proper parkour with proper training to get a dog conditioned to avoid rattlesnakes. They simply learn that approaching that scent is unpleasant by getting a zap on a shock collar. But that's stressful, obviously. Um, anybody would be. It's momentary. Oop, what was that? That's, that's what, what was that? Right? So they react to the scent. The trainer sees that the nose is engaging in the scent with that snake, and boom, there we go. And the dog, and he backs off. So from the from the reaction of that backing off from that scent, he now learns that scent's dangerous. Stay away from that scent. But there was stress. There's definitely stress in that moment. So if I were to measure the cortisol of my dog right in that moment, right after he got the stim from the collar, I would conclude that is very stressful, this type of trading, and I shouldn't be doing it. But really? Because it's very momentary. If I measure a moment, a minute later, there's no cortisol, hardly any cortisol left because it's already dissipated. The moment's over. And the lesson was learned to avoid rattlesnakes. So now my dog can have life experiences that otherwise are not available to him or her. So these momentary stressors are not something we should shy away from if they're, if they're um, executed in the right manner. So right manner means it's very um, meticulously set up. It's very well structured. The lesson is set up in a way that the dog can figure out quickly what to avoid, what not to do, or what to do, depending on what we're doing, whatever the stress, the stress mechanism is. And the dog can learn quickly how to proceed and how to avoid the stimulation. And if they can do that, the stress will dissipate like this. And an important lesson is learned that gives us more freedom and more life experiences. So the lesson from stress tests or from, from stress measurements in dog training studies, you always have to think of, well, when was this stress measured? Is this really the right timing? How quickly was it done? Did they give it some time to dissipate? Did they help the dog after the stressful moment to forget about it? Um, kid goes playing basketball and gets elbowed in the head by accident, and that's unpleasant, right? But if there's a commitment to the game, they're going to move on quickly and get back to it. But if I measure them right after they got elbowed, you know, it's going to be stressful. doesn't mean that basketball isn't the right game for the kid. Uh, it just means stuff happens. And that's the same when we train dogs. So for certain things, we accept that higher stressors momentarily reduce a better outcome. While we also understand that any training, no matter what you do, let it be treats, let it be toys, let it be whatever, while the dog's trying to figure something out and he can't quite get it, there's going to be some stress, measurable in cortisol. So any learning, let it be a positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement or positive negative punishment operation, whatever it is, there's going to be stress. It's just going to be different levels and different durations. So it is not as one better than the other. It just depends on what we're doing, right? So you can make a dog super stressed out with just treats. So let's get to the study um, to give you maybe a little bit perspective on what the stress differences can be. 
So it was the uh, 2008 Selgurli study in, in Hanover, Germany, where three types of training modalities were evaluated for stress with cortisol measurements. And the results surprised the researchers and didn't make them happy because they went in with a kind of an agenda of what they wanted to show, and they didn't quite show that. So the, 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 the things that they did was it was an aversive with a shock color, an aversive with a prong color, and it was a pre-trained um, non-rewards marker. So basically, you're not getting a treat if you do this or that. Right? So it was basically they said the word uh uh or no or something like that, and the dog had learned, well, if I hear this word, I'm not going to get a reward. That's basically a negative punishment process. And quite popular with especially force-free and treat-based trainers, so they consider that very appropriate and acceptable to not give a reward for missing or bad performance. That's very common, so it's not like an unusual thing. But here's the thing about this. So when they studied this, just think for a moment, what do you think would produce the highest amount of stress just from what I just said? Prong color, E color, um, non-reward marker. What do you think causes the most stress? So most people would initially think, well, it's got to be the E color because that's that's just the worst thing. It's an electro electric shock, so that's going to be bad, right? And it was not. So it was actually that the E color, shock color, had the lowest cortisol measurements, the lowest measurable stress level, because it's a quick bam and all. It's a very quick stimulation and bam, it's done. The next one down the line that was a little bit higher, not lower, higher, was the prong color. Because now we're dealing with a variable of, of people and what they do and how hard they check and what they're going to do with the color and how they're going to use the color. So there were not, I don't believe there were any details on the, the strength that was used in those. There's a lot of um, data points that we didn't really have. But on prong colors, they said, well, the stress was higher. And that already surprised people because they would have assumed it's reversed. But now it got really interesting because on the pre-trained non-rewards marker, where the dog was told, nope, you're not getting a treat. The stress went through the roof. It was a lot higher. And that was surprising at the time. It's not surprising if you understand what happens in these mechanisms. I'll get to that in a moment. But that was the outcome. So if you tell your dog you're not getting a treat, however you're going to go about it, or you're withholding the treat, well whatever the mechanism of withholding the reward is, just understand that that produces the highest amount of stress in your dog. And everybody does it because why would you give a reward if your dog blows you off? Why would you give him a treat if you tell him to sit and he doesn't? Well, nobody does that. And I'm not saying you should either. I'm just trying to highlight the differences in stress exposures from different things. So if we're going basically just on cortisol measurements, we should never withhold a reward from a dog ever because that causes a lot of stress. Now, the reason that a non-rewards marker causes so much cortisol release and so much stress is, is because it's a 100% penalty without any variation. It is a 100% deprivation of what you want, the dog in this case. He's getting nothing. Absolutely nothing. Zilch. That's very unpleasant. The other aversives that were used in this context, they all have degrees. I can go higher and lower on each of these tools. And so there's some variability in there. There's no variability in 
not giving a reward because that's what you're going to do. You're not going to give it. And that's it. You're just not going to give it. So given that the stress measurements and the cortisol levels that we can find in dog training studies show us clearly what is more stressful and what isn't, we should adjust our training accordingly. Which then means, if you think through the Salgurli study, I'm going to link it in the podcast, you can read it too, it is much more preferable to give a penalty with an e-collar than to withhold a reward if we're simply talking about stress. If that's the only concern, that's an easy answer. Now, there's obviously other concerns when we train dogs than just the stress exposure in the moment. And most dogs don't need to experience an e-collar ever unless they go to rattlesnake avoidance training. That, that's just how the, the right type of training is done. There is really no alternative to make that reliable. I know there's some, some crazy ideas out there, but they're just fundamentally flawed. We talked about this in the other podcast, so I'd have to rehash that here. But yeah, yeah, I have to use an e-collar to create an aversion to rattlesnakes. It's just one of those things. But most dogs don't need an e-collar in training at all. So it's not absolutely not necessary to use e-collars on most dogs. It's, they're completely overused. This is simply to illustrate the difference in, in, in stress from these tools and the different training approaches we can take. So when you hear about a study, when you read about anything related to what this causes stress, that causes stress, you should always ask yourself first, well, what kind of stress? How long did it last? When was the measurement taken? What was this worth doing? Is this little temporary stress okay for the outcome? Is my dog gaining a tremendous amount of freedom, liberty, and enrichment in life through a very momentary stressor? Uh, it's usually worth it. Some stressors are also unavoidable. The nail clip needs to happen. The grooming may need to happen. Um, the vet visit needs to happen. It's going to be stressful to your dog. If we measure the cortisol in your dog when he goes to the vet, you would never take him to the vet again if that's the criteria because it's not a fun place for a dog to go. So just keep that in mind when you hear about stress and studies and this and that. Yes, stress is important. Long-term stress is dangerous and harmful to anyone, including dogs. we got to avoid that. But momentary, temporary, short-term stress events that everybody experiences experiences during a learning process are completely benign, harmless, normal, and actually unavoidable. There are most likely for most people stress events throughout their day that would, if you measured in that moment, indicate that was a really crappy day or you shouldn't do this thing at all. When in reality, it was a very minor event to you in the big scheme of things and not something you're really concerned about five minutes later. So just keep that in mind and don't get uh, too rattled when you read in a study, well, there was some stress. There's always stress. Stress is unavoidable. Only long-term stress, prolonged stress, stress that doesn't dissipate, those are the problem stress, uh, stress events. The ones that are quick and then they're over, they're completely irrelevant. We all go through them. They're normal. We shouldn't worry about them. We just need to structure our training plans and lessons correctly so it is very short-term for the dog. It is a very quick thing in the recovery after. Okay, that's uh, all I wanted to say about stress. I hope you found this informative, you got something out of it, and I'll see you again next time. Bye.